Kia ora, welcome to the State of the Nation, the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. He's Oliver Hartwich, Executive Director, and my favourite Tory, my, especially my favourite uh, German Tory, I'd have to say, Oliver. Well, thank you very much, Josie. And uh, she's, of course, Josie Pagani, and uh, Josie's my favourite left-winger, so great to have you on this podcast. You're probably the only person who's called me a left-winger in a long time. Well, I think the Labour, Labour Party might disagree. but And you haven't really called me a right-winger, but a Tory, and I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> but you're definitely German, originally. Uh, yeah, but I've got a New Zealand passport too now, so I'm not sure. Yeah, and you look lovely. You look very um, well dressed for a German Tory, but you've got fantastic shoes, which, which you I can't see now, but um, yeah. they are English. Actually, yeah. they are proper Tory shoes. They're, like They're from Northampton. Strip, like your tie. Yeah, like sh- uh, shoes. And um, actually, I probably should get more shirts because I know that I shouldn't wear striped shirts, so I cover that. <laughs> so, what we're trying to do with this podcast, Oliver, is model good debate between the left and the right. And it strikes me this is so hard to do these days. What is and a good debate? Will we both leave the studio alive? And, and still talking. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> idea. I mean, we might do this again. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, I do think it's really hard. There was a lovely article from Liam Dan over the weekend where he talked about how is it we, you know, we, sh- we, we all want the same thing. We want prosperity for New Zealand. We want less poverty. Um, we want people to get a fair go. Uh, good education, good clean education. environment. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, sure. so we all agree on the outcome we want, and mm-hmm. really what we're debating on the left and the right is sort of the yin and yang of politics, I see it. It's like sometimes you're going to be right, and I'm going to concede that you're right about something, and sometimes I'm going to be right, and you're probably not going to concede that I'm right. Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, um, with the yin and yang, I feel like the little dots in the middle, <laughs> when the left and the right are both wrong. Yeah, and yeah. I'm actually neither left nor right wing, I think. Actually, I'm a classical liberal, and that means you don't have a party. Ah, so here's my first question. Yes. To get past polarisation, how do you define your politics? My politics is I believe in freedom as the guiding principle, and I think it's the same whether you want to be in a same-sex marriage or whether you want to run a company. These are both aspects of freedom. So you have business freedom, you have personal freedom, you have freedom of speech, you have all sorts of freedoms, and that's my guiding principle. And sometimes that makes me a right-winger, and sometimes that makes me a left-winger. So you're really a libertarian, you're not really a conservative. I don't like the libertarian word, because that's more an American term, and um, some libertarians are frankly weird. So, no, I, I think I'm an old-fashioned liberal. I like, I like uh, someone described um, compassionate conservatism as, as right-wingers who say sorry. But that's not you're, not, you're not a compassionate conservative so much as a... I'm very compassionate. You're very compassionate. Yeah. You are a compassionate conservative, yes. I'm not conservative. No, I don't, no you're, you're more on the libertarian side, that's for sure. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. okay. Well, what are you then? Well, good question. I, I think I'm, I'm, in a, I'm a classic social democrat. So, so uh, in the style of? In, this, in, this, in the style of I believe in the state, but I'm also a capitalist. I believe in the market. Hmm. So I think it's always a balance between the market and the state. And, and, and I read a wonderful article from Daniel Finkelstein, who's, who's a Tory, UK Tories. Yeah, worked, I, I know Danny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Danny personally? Yeah, of course, oh, because you know I, I worked in the UK. Right. So, so he, described, he, he wrote a great piece saying... The, the, the idea that being on the right of politics simply means tax cuts, it, it, it doesn't. Right? It means no. you know, that the, the values, the conservative or right-wing talk values that he talks about are um, you know, stability, financial stability, but, but um, you know, institutions, strong institutions, rule of law, um, 
all of these things that are really popular, actually. Like, I can go, yeah, I support that. Yeah, but it's, it's shifted anyway. So if you look at voters these days, typically in the past, if you were on a low income, you would vote for a left-wing party. Nowadays, it's the other way around. It's actually people on high incomes that vote for left-wing parties, especially the Greens. And if you are a worker, I mean, for the few workers remaining, the right wing probably offers you a better alternative. So we've got a complete swap, actually, in political preferences. I, th- I think it's a lot to do with the culture war, though, isn't it? It's yeah, I mean, the look at the Teal Party, the Teal Independence class. in yeah. Australia. That's exactly that phenomenon. The richest Australian constituencies have gone to the Teals. Mm. So people who are broadly, well, it's woke the right term. Mm. So for all of these inner city values, um, I'm looking for a non-offensive term for all of this. Woke will do. Yeah, okay, fine. Let's, <laughs> let's keep it that way. Um, and it's quite telling, actually, that the Teal Party was successful in all of these inner-city environments, but nowhere else. And I think that's a, a flip in political orientation that we can see across the Western world. Yeah, I do think that the left has has become, in, in some cases, the sort of new elite, where they're talking yeah. to you know the university common room rather than the smoker room. And that's part of a problem. And we see it in Wellington, don't we? That Wellington has really consciously uncoupled from the rest of the country. You know, it, it's voted for um, where, where in the local elections, most places voted for a right-wing mayor or a centre-right mayor. Um, you know, Wellington has voted for a left mayor. But it's more than that. It's a public sector, I think, that feels like it's really not necessarily... It, the sort of centre of government feels like it's not talking to working people. And you I think say- that's a very special place now, and you can even see it in the way people dress. I mean, I'm trying to counter that, of course, with my ties, but um, the typical Wellington um, bureaucrat wouldn't wear a shirt and a tie or a suit. Mm. Well, definitely not a tie. Tie's not business. Ties are out. I'm the, I'm the last out. one, actually, yeah. in Wellington wearing ties. Yeah, you are. Is this, why is this? Oh, because it's my inner rebellious nature. <laughs> You're rebelling by being more, more yes. conservative than, than the Wellington Beltway. Crazy colourful shoes and ties. So let's let's get into a chat about, um, I suppose, the most recent thing that's happened is the uh, Labour Party conference and the announcement of um, uh, $189 million over four years for childcare. Is this something you support in principle? I thought it was a small step for the country and a huge step for the Labour Party. Uh, seriously, I couldn't make sense of this. I mean, whether you like mm. it as a policy or not, they built it as a measure to tackle inflation and to help New Zealand with the cost of living crisis. And so what you do is you target it very narrowly and give how many families, 10,000 or so, some support. It didn't make much sense, to me at least, because I thought, well, if you're really concerned about the cost of living crisis, I would have a few ideas on how you could deal with that. I mean, starting with the Reserve Bank. We can talk about the Reserve Bank later. Mm. But uh, that policy on its own didn't really make much sense. And I heard a government minister actually on one of the radio programs afterwards saying, yeah, but it was just the first step because wait for the budget. Well, the budget is next May. And um, do we really want to wait until then to really get serious about the cost of living? So I think what they're, what they're doing politically is that they've managed to trap National by coming out with a very timid policy. So National can't then turn around and say, oh, you know, big spend Labour Party, you know, don't vote for them, they'll spend all your money and they'll be more inflationary. So they, they can honestly, you know, the Labour Party can honestly say this is not going to be particularly inflationary. Mm. Uh, it's a small targeted um, policy that helps a certain number of people. My, uh, where I think we agree is that I would want to see something far more 
um, sus- far more of a systemic change that actually solves the problem. And for me, so it would be restructuring. Yeah, no, well, no, for me, it w- well, it would be tax, but it would be restructuring the tax system. So you so want a tax-free threshold. A tax a tax-free threshold, but you've got to pay for it, right? So yeah. I get it. This is the UK Tory lesson, right? You can't, you can't um, cut tax, deal to debt, yep. and keep public spending going all at the same time. You do yeah. have to sort of be realistic about. And especially if you're going to introduce a tax-free threshold, it's going to be ridiculously expensive. It. So I would go for a tax switch, Oliver, which I know you will disagree with, but I'm I would so sure. go because New Zealand. Surely you would concede or, or accept that New Zealand. In New Zealand, it's wage earners and income people on an income who are paying the bulk of tax. Mm-hmm. Right? That that that's I mean, compared to other countries, we we burden our wage earners with tax by far compared to others. So, I would I would like to see a more balanced um, tax system where we are taxing some kind of you know, whether it's a land tax, some kind of wealth, but whether it's a land tax, whether it's a capital. Ga- I mean, it's extraordinary to me that we don't have any kind of capital gains tax. That we treat income from different sources differently. That's would difficult to design. That? that is very difficult to design a wealth tax. I mean, a wealth tax from experience, we know it, it takes more to administer a wealth tax than to actually raise revenue. What about land tax? Even well, even. Um, who was it who said uh, of all that all taxes are terrible, but of all the taxes, a land tax is the best? Well, we do have a land tax already. We've got a rate be. system, of course. I mean, yeah. that's effectively a land tax. I'm not quite sure whether that works. If I wanted to shift things, I would probably increase GST and cut income taxes. We've had a bit of that, of course, a few years ago, but that's I think we still, could go further. That's still going to hurt your wage earners, right? If you're having a, if you're increasing consumption tax. Why would you why would you not look at the tax system in New Zealand and go, we we're we're taxing people going up the hill, making their wealth. So we're taxing the wealth earners of, of tomorrow, um, but we're not taxing those who've already made their wealth at the top of the hill. Well, like, I think why would we not tax them I think just a little bit? We are taxing people at the top of the income pyramid um, quite a lot actually, because if you look at it I haven't got the precise figures with me, but um, if you look at the top 10% of income earners, they cover the bulk of um, all income taxes paid. Because we also, of course, have working for families, and that cuts quite a bit at the bottom. Ah, so there's a question. So you support then the state subsidising companies, that, or subsidising the fact that we don't have high enough wages, which I, I, I would rather no. not have working <coughs> for families, I'd rather have higher wages. Right? But if you don't have I high enough I would like to have wage, higher wages. Um, by the way, that's another reason to actually try to keep income taxes relatively low because if we then also increase our taxes to the point um, of, say, Australia, then there's absolutely no reason for people mm. to stay in New Zealand and that would actually increase the um, brain drain towards Australia because then they will have the same kind of tax rates where, current, where previously we were quite a bit lower and they will also have higher wages and I think that will just increase the pull factor from Australia. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I mean... I. In the same way that it's really hard to have a conversation about what you do about climate change, I sometimes find that it's really hard to have a conversation with my right-wing friends about what you do about tax, because it, it, it compared to other countries, it is the, the balance does seem out. You yeah, know, that we we've got just, a great idea what we can do about that. Yeah, let's have a tax working group. <laughs> <laughs> let's just have a working group. I mean, seriously, um, we've, we've discussed this before. Yeah, I mean, how many working groups on tax have we had in the last twenty years? Yeah. Three or four by my count, something like that, on all sorts of taxes actually, and including on the wealth tax, on the capital gains tax. We've discussed all of this before. We can't really lead this easily to a conclusion, I guess. Mm. And by and large, I think the 
tax system as it stands is not so bad. I mean, we've got a very clean GST system, for example. Mm. I mean, compare that with the madness going on in the UK with VAT or compared to the Australian GST. So some aspects of New Zealand tax are not so bad. At least the system is quite clean. Mm. I mean, I do th- the poll that came out this week after the Labour Party conference that was a News Hub poll, I think, saying that the, most of the most New Zealanders would support a tax-free threshold of, of say, the first twenty thousand, ten to twenty thousand dollars. But I think what we're agreeing is that the Labour Party policy, while it, you know, while no one's going to disagree with helping um, families with childcare. It, it, it doesn't really change, it doesn't move the dial, does it? And no. I, but I don't think Labour wanted to. I think they wanted to prove that they were timid and safe and therefore, you know, people can vote Labour because they're not going to be a transformational Labour government, which well, they've proved, <coughs> let's face if it. If they were serious about cost of living, um, they wouldn't have reappointed Adrian Orr. I mean, there is a Reserve Bank governor who's missed his target massively, we're now running above 7% inflation. It would be actually closer to 8 had it not been for the temporary fuel duty cut. And the target range, we should not forget, is between 1% and 3%. And so what you do when you miss your target consistently for a long period of time, when you've got absolutely no chance of getting back to target, of course you get another five-year term. So really, if, if Labour was serious at all about the cost of living crisis, they would have found a different governor. So, yeah, just to, for the record, you uh, you have degrees in law and economics. Mm-hmm. I have a degree in political theatre. But let's have a discussion. Well, <laughs> so that's a very good combination. So let's have a discussion about monetary policy. <laughs> okay. I did go back to university, actually, the last few years and get a... Um, graduate certificate in international law because I thought I needed a real qualification. Congratulations. But there we go. So, yes, Adrian Orr, I know that New Zealand's Initiative, you've written a lot recently and challenging stuff about uh, monetary policy in the Reserve Bank and what should have been done during COVID. But would you not have done a stimulus to support businesses and wages through COVID? Of would, course. Would you have done that? You would have done that. We, we are on the record. We supported mm. it um, at the beginning of COVID. I think the problem was actually that we misread the crisis. Okay, I'm willing to forgive anything that happened in the period from about March to about May 2020. Um, We thought the world's coming to an end. We didn't know how this pandemic would play out. This was uncharted territory. Okay, you make mistakes um, and you're experimenting and you have no rule book to play dry. However, by about May, certainly June, July 2020, it became quite clear what this crisis really is. Of which year? 2020. 2020. So we're talking about the early stages of the pandemic, and it became Mm. clear we are not dealing with a demand slump. Uh, That's not what it was. It was a supply crisis, a supply shock. And we know from experience, if you're stimulating an economy in a supply crisis, well, what you do is you're pushing up all prices in the economy. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. And so I think the government and especially the Reserve Bank misread the crisis and kept pumping money into the economy when it was clear that all of this wall of money would just meet a supply crisis. But what, what, what Adrian Orr and the Reserve Bank, what they were weighing up with the dual mandate, which I know you don't support, but we'll come to that, but they were weighing up, you know, do we make it, the risk of getting it wrong is we make a mistake and we get inflation. The risk of getting it wrong the other way, where we don't support the economy, we don't support businesses and wages, is that we have a massive recession and people hurt, you know, businesses fall over um, and and communities suffer, right? So the, the, the risk of getting it wrong one way was a lot less, right? They, they, they took a gamble. Um, I think it was the right gamble. I, but I'm so what glad I think you challenged me on that 
<laughs> but, but I think what you're saying is that you would support that to a certain extent, but you would have you would have cut back stimulus a lot sooner. That's what you've said in your in the, in the New Zealand Initiative report. Yeah. So what? When would you have pulled back? When would you have tightened? Well, first of all, um, I think that story... In hindsight, easy to say in hindsight. No, 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 not in hindsight. We actually said it at the time. Mm. What you say is the conventional story that the Reserve Bank kind of weighed up. Okay, we can support the economy um, and that will probably trigger some inflation down the track or we can let the economy go to hell in a handcart. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, that's not how the Reserve Bank argued at the time. So you can go back through the publications throughout 2020, 2021 the Reserve Bank never flagged the possibility of inflation. They didn't see that there was a choice to be made. They thought, no, we can have this, and inflation did will not move. Did the US Fed? Did, um, did the ECB? Uh, no, not, none of them really so saw no, it coming. So, d- so no they one didn't, saw it coming. So they mm. didn't make that kind of decision, oh, we can do this and risk that, or we do the other stuff and risk that. The Reserve Bank didn't even show any consideration that there was mm. some choice to be made. They thought, no, we'll get away with that. So I think that narrative now that uh, they were heroically doing something knowing that there are risks, that's not true because they didn't acknowledge the risks at the time. So assuming you're right that uh, central banks across the world did not have that discussion early in 2020, that they were weighing up the risks of more inflation or the risks of, of crashing the economy. Even if that's right, it's still looking back those were the, um, that was the framing for um, for the decisions going forward, right? So looking back now, when would you have tightened monetary policy? I would have tightened monetary policy probably around late 2020, early 2021. And I say that because that's actually what central banks should have done according to the Taylor rule. So in in economics, we've got a simple tool that allows central banks to calculate where the OCR, so the official cash rate, should be. And you basically feed all of your data into this formula, and it tells you roughly where the OCR should be. And when you go back the last 20-odd years of New Zealand monetary policy, the Reserve Bank typically stayed within plus minus 1% of that Taylor rule OCR. Except in 2021, they started uh, completely deviating from that, and they're currently about 3.5% above where it should be. Oh, uh, sorry, below the Taylor rule. So the Taylor rule is about right. 3.5% above where the OCR currently is. Right. And that gap started to build up from about 2021, early 2021. So at that stage, it became quite clear that the Reserve Bank settings were removed from where a reasonable central bank would, should, would set um, interest rates. So I know that you... You have campaigned quite strongly against the dual mandate, so inflation, price stability, and um, sustainable employment level. Yeah. Right. So if if we'd only had one mandate in mm-hmm. twenty twenty, the Reserve Bank would not have been able under its under its mandate to do anything about um, uh, you know supporting the, the employment during. During there was COVID, n- nothing right? to support actually but, more but, in 2021. But if the government had been chucking money at wage subsidies, which they did, wage subsidies supporting businesses and so on, massive stimulus, under the single mandate, surely the Reserve Bank, the only option they would have had is to tighten monetary policy then. So they would have actually cancelled out. No, no. Um, cancelled out any stimulus no, 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 during 2020. Not at all. In 2020, if you look back to what the Taylor Rule prescribed back then, that's exactly where the Reserve Bank ended up they started deviating from it towards the end of 2020, early 2021. So uh, I'm not uh, judging the Reserve Bank on what they did in the early stages of COVID, but 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 by the end of that first COVID year, Mm. they should have realised, actually, no, we're going too far. 
Right, but but I mean, what I mean is in principle, if with a single mandate, you're always you're you're always going to have monetary policy and fiscal policy in a crisis working against each other. Not necessarily, no. I think, but it's actually, harder to go. No, but, but, but seriously, what would you do with a dual mandate? You know, and um, economists have known since the 1970s that you cannot actually influence employment, even in the medium term, with um, um, monetary policy. There is a very um, no, nice but you can cancel <coughs> out what government. I mean, you can you can make it harder no. for government. To well, actually, no. The Reserve Bank makes it harder for government to achieve its targets. I mean, coming from Germany and having studied economics in Germany. Um, one of the sayings that I've heard again and again in my years at university was um, a quote from German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt in the 1970s. That was a time in the early 70s when politicians and some economists believed you could actually um, target both employment and monetary stability. And Helmut Schmidt said, if I have the choice between 5% unemployment and 5% inflation, well, I take the 5% inflation. The irony was a year later he had both because he had built up the expectations of higher inflation and then unemployment rose. So actually, we have known this really since the late 1970s, that actually in the medium term, you cannot have a choice between the two. What a central bank should do is should actually target monetary stability, and then employment will be okay. Do you believe in a natural rate of unemployment? Um, dep depending on how you define it. I mean, if you mean that there are some people who you will always struggle to reintegrate into the labor market because of maybe substance abuse issues and um, wrong qualifications, and of course, frictional unemployment, where people mm. are just between jobs. That, that will always yes, be that's there. A, that's yeah. a, yeah, that will a, always or, be there. Yeah. But but isn't it as a monetarist? Don't don't you believe if you if you believe in the in price stability as the single man uh, single um, um, uh, mandate, then you believe also that there is a natural rate of unemployment that's the, above which inflation will happen. No, isn't and, that and, the difference between a well, dual mandate and a single and a Ach, Josie, the first, the first disagreement is actually I'm not even a monetarist. I'm an Austrian school economist. Um, oh, actually, which reminds me of a lovely yeah. quote from uh, J.K. Goldbreth, I think, when Hayek, you know, the monetarist, okay. came no, back. No, Hayek was not a monetarist. Wasn't he? No, he was an Austrian school economist. Right, but he's beloved of the, he's the hero of the monetarists. No, right? that's Milton Friedman. But Hayek too, I thought. No, oh. no, no, no. I'm not going to argue with you <coughs> about the history history of, of, of economists. But okay, he was your the, next he was degree a, you're going to study next for degree is going to be monetary economics. Yeah, I economics. am. Monetary, I'm going to come back with, with, with all the yeah. uh, facts and figures. But he was in a conference in Vienna, I think, and Galbraith uh, thanked him for going to America because it meant that Austria could have a period of growth and stability <laughs> in the economy. Yeah, that sounds very much like J.K. Galbraith. Yes. Yes, yeah. no. Let's leave that. There. Let's le let's leave a debate <laughs> on. <laughs> so so yes, you your your um, what were you saying? I can't remember now. Oh, I, yeah. I said that we said all the things at the time. There was no yeah. hindsight economics involved. I mean, I, I love this phrase from Grant Robertson's hindsight economics. No, it's not hindsight economics. Actually, when he accused us of that, I was just digging through our website, finding out all the op-eds and press releases and publications we produced over the last three years, and I could actually point to, no, no, we, we said this in 2019 when all started talking about QE, even before COVID, and then we raised this repeatedly in 2020, 2021, 2022, and we always said, no, no, this is always going to end in inflation, and you are actually losing track. And mm. we said that, and we were probably the only ones saying it at the time when people thought oh, everything is going to be fine and inflation is not a problem, and hasn't been for decades, of course. No, we said that, and um, in hindsight, um, we were right. Mm. But there's, I think there is a good debate to be had about um, the dual mandate 
And there is not going to be a good debate about this. It should be, though. No, it's, it's, it's debunked. The whole thing is debunked. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in theory. Well, the Fed it doesn't has work a dual mandate. Yeah, but it doesn't make it even better. If they are jumping off a cliff, I mean, you're ECB not following. ECB has a dual mandate. No, the ECB doesn't. I thought it did. No, it doesn't. Oh. No, it's in a treaty. Ah. No. The um, RBA in Australia, they have a dual mandate, yeah. but it doesn't make any sense either. Right. But so, so Dual mandates are nonsense. They're complete nonsense. Political window dressing. But, but why? Why? I mean, it, it, Because it sounds so good. I mean, because politicians want to say we're doing something for employment in the But economy. as I understand it, if you, there, there is a belief that there is a natural rate of unemployment above which inflation happens. Therefore, if you have a single mandate, you are always going to have, if you've got a government trying to deal with unemployment um, and, and a, a reserve bank that is only focused on price stability, it's going to say, no, I want to keep unemployment at this rate because above that we're going to get inflation. That's my only mandate. Turn it around. Um, would you then argue that a reserve bank should lower interest rates so as to artificially depress unemployment levels? No, I think they should have a dual mandate and decide which one is the priority. And mm. I actually but agree with you, as mo- most people do now, that um, most central banks should have tightened sooner and they made a mistake, right? So so the fact that they made a mistake doesn't mean that the principle of having two lenses by which you look at an economy and go, right, what's the problem we're dealing with? Are we going to have a recession and lower growth or are we dealing with inflation? I'm getting so to the point where I wonder whether I should cancel you because <laughs> <laughs> this is clearly not true. And actually, no, seriously, in, in economics, you would struggle to find any serious economists actually coming up with that position. Because it's been seriously debunked in the last 40 uh, years. No uh, one I've heard since the late Mary 1970s Summers, when uh, I was four. Mark Carney, um, a pretty serious no, economist. The no, no, but. Former uh, heads of no, Treasury, seriously. Reserve Bank, no, um, Bank of England, Bank the, of Canada. T- okay, it's nice that you're mentioning all these institutions <laughs> when they've all failed on inflation. Um, but so do you so want to take credit for all of that? <laughs> so, yeah, but what I'm saying is it's not debunked. It is debunked. In the, no, no. I mean, in theoretical economics, it's pretty clear, actually. We have seen it, what happens when a reserve bank targets unemployment. It shouldn't. It just shouldn't. This is just a political measure, and it doesn't work in economics. So let's shift, because this week... Yes! We're <laughs> Would you like a hug, Oliver? Yeah, we can do that afterwards, <laughs> Josie. Um, um, this week, we've got COP27 starting. Exciting, huh? The, 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 it's a football stadium the name, full of people. The trick is in the name, isn't it? The fact yes. that it's 27 Correct. tells you that 26 have really pretty much failed to deliver a lowering of emissions. And I think you guys have done fantastic work on understanding... I think we agree on that. At the, <laughs> yeah, that we can agree on. Full stop. <laughs> Yeah. Um, on on understanding pricing in lowering emissions, and um, you know, I look at Canada where you know there's a, the, the the price of carbon, there's a carbon dividend, so you know the dividend goes to citizens to the public. So they say they, that the the social license for pricing carbon and paying a carbon tax is is really high because you get a dividend. Uh, in, in your own pocket, each citizen yeah, gets a dividend. Canada right? does that really it's amazing. well. Canada, it's, it's, yeah. it's coming from this um, country of this famous libertarian Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the uh, male version of, of Justin Trudeau. But actually, I would say Justin Trudeau has, yeah, he's done a lot actually, uh, even though he get, can annoy the hell out of me. But he's done, um, yeah, uh, pricing carbon, he's introducing uh, free dental care. Uh, he, he introduced a much bigger early childhood education policy than the Labor government here. But anyway, that aside, COP27, Yes, um, it's very hard, isn't it, to have a discussion about what policies work in terms of lowering emission. Yeah. So New Zealand, we're going 
contact with uh, uh, basically a context where um, we've banned oil and gas, but in fact we've increased the use of coal. Our, I mean, have our emissions, I think they've lowered slightly, but not in any substantial way, and we're using more coal than we were. That doesn't matter. Um, because we've got an emissions trading scheme and um, we've got a capped total amount of emissions. Yes, exactly. And therefore, even People if People don't understand Even this. if we import no. coal, it doesn't matter. Um, but in your COP27, have you ever taken part in any of these? No, have you? Yes. Have you? Yes. How did you get an invite um, I was working as a German Tory, well, passionate, um, conservative, libertarian? Yeah, cor- correct, <laughs> in London at the time. And um, I worked for a think tank and um, we were engaged in um, climate change policy and um, that's how I found myself at COP. I've forgotten what it was, maybe 12, 13, 14. Anyway, it was 2005 in Montreal. And uh, the one thing I remember, it was bloody cold. Mm. So um, it was early December, and um, we had to take a taxi for distances I would have usually walked, but it was so cold. And the irony of having... What climate change? For Montreal in winter, it would have been a blessing. Anyway, um, so it was a giant trade fair. Um, At the time, I think there were about 20,000 people there, and it was a big circus. It was a massive circus. And um, I heard that Sharm el-Sheikh, probably because the weather is better than in Montreal... Some of year, 35,000 people. And all of these cops seem to work exactly the same way. I mean, Montreal was just like that. Um, they meet for two weeks and then the politicians fly in and fly out. And at the end of it, all the heads of government come together again and it's a last minute push. And then the conference gets an extra day. <laughs> it's extended. I'm sure they've prepared for that. And then at 3 or 4 a.m. local time, you get some sort of solution and then we'll meet again next year. It's a bit absurd. Mm. I mean, it's, it's good that our governments are talking to each other. That's that's nice. But what is much more important is actually having decent policies on the ground domestically, like in New Zealand. So we have 98% of our um, economy covered mm. by emissions trading. We've got 50% of emissions covered. The difference is because of agriculture. But what we are doing with the non-ag parts of the economy is brilliant because we have a comprehensive emissions trading scheme. It works. We have seen how it works actually just by the fact that the carbon price has gone up massively in the last two or three years from about $20 to a bit more than 80 today. And companies, um, and I talk to companies all the time, are telling me that they're changing their behavior. They're changing Mm. their production processes because of that. That's exactly what you want to see. Now, the only thing missing from our wonderful emissions trading scheme in New Zealand, introduced by the Clark government, by the Mm. way, and perfected, I may say, under uh, James Shaw's leadership as climate change minister, um, the only thing missing is really this kind of carbon rebate or carbon Mm. dividend or whatever you want to call this. How do you bring agriculture into it? That's the other thing Mm. that's missing. But actually, to have more acceptance and perhaps more public awareness of the scheme, what you could do is you could take the revenues and rather than putting them in a slush fund where Shaw and Robertson can do whatever they like with it, why wouldn't we want to pay that back to households just as they do in Canada? Because in Mm. that way, households would actually see that something's happening. It would help households make decisions on how to become more energy efficient themselves. Then you don't need any of the other nonsense like kind of clean car schemes or fee-based schemes or any of the other stuff. No, you leave it to households and say, okay, you know your energy prices are going up every year because of our emissions trading scheme and because carbon prices are going up, as they should. But in return, the revenue is passed back to you and you have the money to invest in any kind of energy-saving technology you like. So would you change, you, you'll get 
you change the ETS? No, would, I would, would keep the ETS as it is. And have um, introduce a carbon pricing system with dividends to the, um, citizens. Yeah, basically. I mean, we've got carbon pricing. It's in the ETS. Whenever you fill your car, um, mm. presuming you're still driving an internal combustion engine car, mm. you are paying for that because the um, petrol dealers are, of course, putting this into their prices because they have to pay for the certificates. And then you take all of that revenue from that ETS and pass it on to households and say, okay, this is your dividend now because New Zealand has a wonderfully functioning ETS. And as you say, it's working in Canada yeah. and it's hugely popular yes. and therefore there is huge social support, social licence for doing more mm. uh, to, uh, to lower Correct. emissions. But we can see why we don't have that scheme here. Mm. I think the reason is, of course, um, a slush fund is politically very attractive. If you're a minister, you would rather like to have a slush fund of a few billion dollars you can spend on your preferred projects or bribe people into voting for you next time. See, this is where I think the, the farm gate levy that the government introduced, where I think farmers and, and federated farmers, but they have a point of view, I think I, I agree that they should ha- there should be some, uh, someone from a farming background who is helping, who is on the board deciding the price, right? Whereas at the moment, it's just, I think, uh, under the present structure that they propose, governments propose, it's just the Climate Commission. Yeah, and I think actually, ideally, what you would do, probably staggered over time, is you would move agriculture into the ETS. Yeah, it, it seems crazy to me not to have a plan to, to ultimately move agriculture into the ETS. Otherwise, as you say, if you've got agriculture out of the ETS, what's yeah. the point of the ETS if most of our exactly. emissions, or at least some of the methane and, and gases, farmyard gases, uh, are obviously coming from agriculture. But in any case, isn't that interesting? So we have all of this stuff happening on the ground, and yet we have this massive COP27 with mm. probably zero results. I mean, I heard uh, James Shaw actually in a radio interview this week um, saying he had very limited expectations mm. of that conference. He justified the Prime Minister not being there. Again, she's never been to a COP, unlike me. Um, and um, <laughs> Shaw said, well, actually, there's no point her going because, first of all, I'm going to be there as the climate change minister, and secondly, nothing's going to happen in Sharm el-Sheikh. So yeah, you kind of really wonder why this stuff is still happening. I do think that's... Um, hurt her a bit as the the fact that she's made climate change her nuclear free moment. Yeah, but she and went not to, to ever go to yeah, but not to ever go to a COP. I mean, I don't know. Maybe COP twenty seven is Hamilton in Hamilton West because she clearly is not planning to go to Hamilton West very much either. So well, that's going to be interesting, isn't it? So yes, let's segue onto the onto that. Although one thing I did want to say about. Uh, um, you know, because I worked in aid and development for many years, um, it, and you did the, some great work there. Thank you very much. Oh, mutual mutual oh, appreciation yeah. club. Um, and thank you for your support of what we do in aid and development. I think this is what people no, don't understand. thank you. I think we are so no, thank wonderful. You. <laughs> <laughs> you're the, you're, and your shoes are great. Yeah. Um, and yeah. your tie. But even no, though uh, monetary uh, policy. Even though I can't, yeah, yeah uh, you, we disagree on monetary policy. I think we'll always disagree on monetary policy. But um, once you, un- until you study it. Until I, <laughs> no, well, no, my international <laughs> law has made me far more muscular about um, uh, intervening for humanitarian Okay. Uh, right, I'm, I'm, I'm. I would call myself muscular left. Right, okay. Uh, in Ukraine, actually. So anyway, what was your com- question? <laughs> complete deviation here, because I see myself as I think. Well, I'm centre left, and the centre always sounds so bland, like it's some um, kind of bland compromise between the right and the left that creates, you know, it's a beige politics. Actually, um, the the war in Ukraine has shown that the centre has been the radical muscular 
voice for, for supporting Ukrainians with military support, with humanitarian support, and not wavering. Been? Yes, yes. So you think of the left in America, where you've got yeah. the progressive left who sent a letter, outrageous letter to Biden, um, asking him to go and negotiate with Putin. I mean, how the hell did the far left end up on the same side as the far right, where That's you've true. got the Republican right saying, yep, I don't want to keep paying aid for, for Ukraine. Yeah. Anyway, Except a in Germany. In, in Germany, the Greens are the most ardent supporters of Ukraine. It's the yes, Green that's right, Party, but the Greens not, in Germany are yeah, quite yeah. different, aren't they? Oh, that's they're, right. I wouldn't quite compare them with the Greens here. They're far more pragmatic, um, electorally successful. Yep, and totally committed to supporting Ukraine, including with weapons deliveries. Here's a question for yeah. you, Oliver. I've wanted to ask you this a long time. Should New Zealand be more like Germany? It is very much like Germany in many respects. I'm not sure, quite sure whether I like it. And so what do you not like well, okay. about the Germany-New Zealand nexus? Well, let's put it this way. Um, Which is an odd nexus that I haven't heard of before. But yes. I actually brought a column about it. I can send it to you. Um, my argument is actually that the countries are quite similar in some ways. So on foreign policy, Germany always regarded itself, especially after unification, as a larger version of Switzerland. So um, rich, prosperous, admired, and um, vigorously disinterested in international affairs. Um, so that's mm. the role that they try to play. And you can see this actually in the dealings that Germany had with Russia. So they pretended mm -hmm. that Russia just wanted to sell the gas. There were absolutely no security implications. All fine. And actually, what do we even need an army for? So the Germans have actually run down their army and their air force and their navy to the point where German Air Force pilots actually had to train with the Automotive Association because at least they had helicopters where they could fly, because mm. otherwise they would have lost their licenses. Um, New Zealand's a bit like that. I mean, I'm not sure how much of an army we have left. Um, I think we have two frigates left in the Navy. One of mm. them is being repaired at the moment. We have no fighter jets. We really didn't think we need one because they were always the Australians, just in case. Do you support bringing defence expenditure up to 2%? Absolutely. How, and how do we pay for that? Um, or what do we cut? Well, there are so many <laughs> things I would like to cut. Let's not go there. But definitely we have to get defense up. Mm. We have to be able to defend ourselves. Um, the other parallel sees in energy. So in energy, um, Germany kind of believe that they can do all sorts of virtuous things all at once. You switch off nuclear power because it's dangerous. You switch off coal-fired power stations because it's fossil fuels. And yeah, okay, then you import gas from Russia and it's got to be fine. Um, they even classified gas as a sustainable energy source because of that. And in New Zealand, well, we had a very well-functioning um, electricity system and energy system until this government came along and decided, no, we now have to make it 100% renewable. And for little gain. For little an gain. And then you drop. also thought for some window dressing, you can switch off gas and you, you wouldn't give any more permits anymore for offshore gas exploration and oil exploration. So it was all virtual signaling. And in that respect, again, Germany and New Zealand are quite similar. So when I look at the two countries, I think they are more similar than they realise. I do think, though, like with Germany, if you talk about energy, since we were talking about COP27, um, that they, they have a kind of all-of-the-above approach, which is good, right? And, and they're bringing back, they're, they're actually keeping their nuclear stations uh, yeah. open for longer Don't now. Don't get me started. Right, but they should, right? I yeah, mean, well, they, you, they, you, they keep them running. If you're serious about climate change, I don't think we should have nuclear power in New Zealand because we've got earthquakes. But you, if you seriously want to lower emissions, you have to consider You don't have to convince me nuclear on nuclear power, power right? I'm no, totally no. with you. But, the, but they had a much better approach to um, what Obama 
under Obama, the energy policy was all of the above, you know, renewables and realistically fossil fuels are not going to go away in a heartbeat. So we have to look at, okay, gas is better than coal yeah. and so on. So he had a ve- Obama had a very realistic approach to energy. Yeah. I think Germany does too. I don't well, think G- have, Germany doesn't have a realistic but, but they approach. have now, haven't they? They're, they're ah. kind of bringing, they're keeping their nuclear power you know for how long? open. For three months, for an extra mm. three months, they were supposed to be switched off. New Year's Eve next year, uh, sorry, this year, um, mm. and they now let them run for another three months. So you don't think they'll extend it longer? Probably not, because um, mm. they're quite ideological about it. Mm. But I would have thought now there is a, even, you know, you'll have green parties, you'll have, um, uh, you know, green campaigners supporting nuclear power for exactly the reason that they want to lower emissions and, you have and do a faster transition. You have campaigners like even Greta Thunberg mm. arguing for nuclear power. She was on German TV a few mm. weeks ago saying uh, it's madness to switch off nuclear power. And of course, the German Greens hated her for that. Um, but it was the first time that I ever agreed with Greta Thunberg. And um, the German Greens wouldn't listen. They come out of the anti-nuclear movement from the 1970s and 80s. And for them, it's really a sacred cow. You can't slaughter that sacred cow. And therefore, Germany would switch off nuclear power, even though it's practically the only base load they still have. And that, of course, increases the risk of blackouts. And by the way, we just had a story in New Zealand saying the same. So we have invested mightily in wind energy, and now we find that it fluctuates because sometimes, surprise, surprise, the wind doesn't blow. Mm. And, and mm. Germany finds that too. It's, it's really strange. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. It's called night. And if you've got night and there's no wind, then you've got a problem because there's no more base load in this and, country. And, and this is the how hard it is to have this conversation that if you if you want to and you know, massively accelerate renewables, you have to have the the intermittent energy exactly. source that's going to be there when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining. And, and that that's is exactly what would have made it so expensive to go to 100% renewable in New Zealand because the last 2 3% percentage points, they will cost you an arm and a Yeah, back. exactly. They will break you. Yeah. Yeah. You will go bankrupt first before you become carbon neutral. That's what I was going to say, having worked in aid and development, that it seems to me the big thing that's lacking in the, the global climate um, uh, approach is money to developing countries to transition off coal burning peat in Indonesia. I mean, if we if we could, you know, if we could actually honour our commitments to mm. paying developing countries or, or you know paying China not to build more coal plants, we would do more to lower emissions than just about anything we're doing in New Zealand. At the moment. I'm not saying right. we should we should do stuff in New Zealand. Each country should do stuff, but and uh, that's the priority. Massively cheaper. Massive priority. So instead of going through schemes like the clean car rebate scheme, which according to, I think, ACT's calculation now costs $125,000 a tonne, a ton. Yes, but also people are buying a Tesla for seventy thousand and getting an eight thousand dollars subsidy from a Labour government. Correct. That, that, and, that to me is. You probably have to drive outrage. it for at least eighty thousand kilometers until you even compensate for all the emissions in the production process. Because actually, producing the battery, the giant battery for Tesla, that is very carbon intensive. Mm, mm. So COP twenty seven, we've done that. Uh, we're, we're not expecting anything. Uh, James Shaw will be back. What next week? Or shortly, yeah. I mean, nothing's going to change particularly. No. Yeah, they will meet again. Yeah. What's the one thing that you would do now in New Zealand to um, lower our emissions? 
I think I would continue on the path we're on. I would mm. make sure that the public actually understands what's happening with the ETS. The problem with the ETS, it's a beautiful system. It's beautifully designed. It delivers the goods and nobody understands it. Mm. Because it takes about two or three minutes to explain it to the average voter. And until the average voter understands how, it, how the ETS works, the voters are going to be more susceptible to supporting policies that simply don't work. And that's what's going to make it really costly. So if you have alternative policies, complementary policies to the ETS um, that will cost us maybe four or $500 a ton, mm. then voters should know how nonsensical that is because they should say, hang on, why are you spending all of this money on cutting a ton of carbon there when actually you could cut five or maybe 10 tons of carbon with the ETS? Yeah, I agree. I agree with We agree on that. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so um, final question, um, uh, you know, we're, rather than talking about Hamilton West, uh, which we could get into. But, um, you know, Mark Carney, former Reserve Bank, uh, former Central Banker for Canada and the UK, uh, Larry Summers, I've been at meetings with both of them in the last few months, and they have both predicted a global recession uh, next year. Do you agree? I think it's looking increasingly likely because the world economy is in really difficult um, circumstances at the moment. We have record levels of debt. We have rising interest rates around the world. We had the Jackson Hole Conference, of course, uh, where all the central bankers came together and said we have to do something about inflation because uh, we can't let it spiral out of control. It would just make it more expensive to deal with it later. So you put all of that together. That means that um, circumstances in 2023 are going to be even tougher. And on top of that, we've got supply chain disruptions. Still, as long as China maintains its zero COVID approach, which it looks like it will. It looks like it, even though... And it'll uh, become more isolated. Uh, even though the, I had a bit of hope. I thought once they're done with their party congress and she is re-elected for life, that makes it a bit easier for him to do things after the election. It, it used to be like that with politicians, and I thought it would work like that in dictatorships too. So um, <laughs> it, it theoretically, it should have made it easier for him to deviate from his old policy after the congress. So maybe there's still some hope that mm. China actually gets off it. Yeah, I mean, I do think, uh, I mean, another issue it would be good to talk about at some point is, is uh, the need to reset our trade policy, right? Well, we, we have to diversify away from simply being so dependent on China, but also That's trade deals. I mean, globalisation yeah, yeah. has taken a big hit. Uh, I think the age of FTAs, of, of high-quality FTAs are gone. Um, I mean, we haven't signed anything that's worth uh, a, a, its weight in gold. <laughs> I mean, we have the, the EU... Trade deal is weak. Yep. Uh, we're looking at one with Latin America. It looks equally weak. There's nothing on the horizon yep. that looks like we're going to be able to re-enter a kind of intelligent globalisation post-COVID, is there? And that's in a way sad that we're talking about FTAs because once upon a time we talked about at least some multilateral deals or maybe global mm. deals. I mean, the WTO is effectively dead and um, it will take a long time for it to come back, if it comes back at all. Mm. It's, it's sad that we are at the stage where we, the best we can hope for is a slightly better FTA with a few countries. There was a time not so long ago when we talked about globalization, about the world being flat, and all of this hope from the 90s is gone. So actually I, I share that sentiment that it's a really, really tough environment out there for trade. Mm. A great quote from Larry Summers uh, when I saw him recently where he said, you know, we've... Globalisation, we need globalisation to keep working. We need to make sure that it's benefiting the many, not the few. 
the response that we that we mustn't have, it's like when you go to the butcher and the butcher doesn't have beef, you don't go and buy your own cow, right? You find another butcher, right? Correct. So the, his point is, you know, we cannot take the lesson from COVID and the, the um, isolationist approach to trade and um, post-COVID we can't, the lesson from that can't be that we have to make everything ourselves. Yeah, you know, and go the, and find our own cow. And the other lesson from Ukraine is, of course, that you wouldn't want to become as dependent on Russia as Germany was. Yeah. So not with any other country, and not just for energy. Uh, we have to be careful, especially when we're dealing with autocracies. Uh, yes, they might want to trade with us for a while, but they can turn nasty quite quickly. Well, you guys, I know, talk about. We've argued about how you increase wages. Um, with a, a long email trail arguing about um, you know whether or not actually lifting wages is a good idea. I think it is. You think it's the answer is, I is, think it's productivity. is productivity. And I agree with you, but productivity is a long-term thing. I've been talking about productivity in, in com media commentary for 10 years. But it seems to me now, if we've got this problem with Just uh, shows uh, how young you to are. Rethink, <laughs> rethink our trade policy... We've got to I look know economists at who've talked about this in New Zealand for 40 years. Yeah, well, I know. If I'd known more, I would have been talking about it for longer. <laughs> but I, I can tell you the story, about it actually. Coherently for 10 years. So but when we, I arrived in New to, Zealand, I attended a seminar. Raw products, I attended a seminar when I arrived about 10 years ago, and um, a bunch of economists in the room, all much older than me, talking about productivity, the productivity paradox, and why it doesn't work. And uh, anyway, I found this very interesting. I was new to New Zealand, and I, I said to one of the guys there, that was a really high-quality event. And he turned around to me and said, no, we've had this discussion for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Are we the only country who keep having this discussion? Um, I mean, we are, we, yeah. we are really rubbish yeah. at getting this right. I'd, why are we <coughs> not the... I always say, why are we not the IKEA of, of the Pacific? The why IKEA? We, well, yeah, because we've got uh, law, uh, raw logs sitting on the... I've talked about this forever, sitting on the waterfront. Um, you know, we're exporting milk powder why yeah. aren't we exporting nutraceuticals why why are we not i mean if we're going to rethink our trade strategy we have to start thinking of of us you know fisher and pike or healthcare of high-tech companies that can make us more money it's obvious and, and i say it i'm almost boring myself just saying it because i've said it so many times how do we get to that point Oh, there are so many things you have to do. Um, in the long run i think you need a better education system because you cannot be yeah. highly productive if you're not educated but I think that's a conversation for another day because it will take too long and it's far too depressing. Um, mm. The other thing is actually we need to get much better at linking into international value chains. We don't mm -hmm. do that. Yes, we are a relatively free trading country, but we are not a free trading country when it comes to investment. We've made it really hard for companies to settle in New Zealand to come here. And unfortunately, if we don't have these international companies investing in New Zealand, we will struggle to link into their value mm. chains. We will struggle to uh, benefit from their expertise. So I think that's one of the ways in which you would start tackling productivity. And then the biggest obstacle, I think, so domestically... make it easier for investment. Yeah. Biggest obstacle to um, productivity in the long run, apart from education, is land. So I think as long as the land market is not working properly and we have severe distortions there for a number of reasons. We've got planning legislation, the IMA, we have um, insufficient means to fund infrastructure... We haven't got the right fiscal incentives for councils to go for development, and all of this distorts the land. And we're very low in R and D, right? I mean, we, we have one of the lowest That's investments in R and D, which is partly to do with your investment yes. argument. Yes, but it's also, I think, to do with incentives that government. Yeah. 
can give in the tax system. Yes, but anyway, that's a discussion that New Zealand has had for thirty or yeah. forty years, yeah. and um, probably a discussion for yet another. See, do you believe in top-down economics or do you believe in... I, I believe in something called middle-out economics where you invest in um, the stuff that I think you would agree. You invest in a good education system, mm. in infrastructure, mm. in skills, in training, in, in, in the sort of... The idea that your economy grows from the middle out, not mm -hmm. from the top down. I'm not sure. Um, I, if, if you give me that choice, I'd probably say bottom-up. I think um, the economy should grow really bottom-up from local communities, families, businesses, cities, communities. I'm a great believer in localism, as you know. Yeah, I which think is where you and I first met, um, yes. furiously agreeing about, about localism, devolution. Yeah. So I don't believe in so top-down solutions. I think that is a middle-out argument. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's saying that, yeah, it starts from building yes. communities from the middle-out. And, yeah. and I... Um, just simply um, distrustful of politicians promising great top-down programs and um, you know, one-size-fits-all policies. Yeah. Typically, it's one-size-fits-none. So and I think again, we have I to become a lot more we, local. Where we agree, you know, coming from a left and a right perspective, is that um, top-down anything, whether it's top-down state mm. or whether it's top-down economics of uh, you know, supply-side economics, I, you know, it, it, it has to come from the yes, community. Exactly. Up, right? Yeah. Um, very so, much agreement. so much agreement. So much agreement. One last, last question. This is, uh, or, or rather, I suppose it's a question, but one, one of my favourite uh, jokes about economists forecasting, it's like, you know, I, th I think it was Galbraith again who said uh, economic forecasting uh, makes astrology look like a science. But So it's very hard to forecast, I know. And, and um, the other anecdote... We got 10 out of the last three recessions, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Who did? No, economists. Oh, economists did. Right. And my favorite joke is actually um, the two iron rules of economics. For every economist, there is an equal and opposite economist. That's rule number one. And rule number two, they're both wrong. <laughs> right, right. My favorite economics, economist joke is, uh, you know, shipwreck, uh, end up on a deserted island uh, and nothing to eat but a whole bunch of cans. And the economist, and we go, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the economist goes, I've got a solution. Oh, great, great. What is it? First, imagine we have a can opener. Exactly. No, I think um, that <laughs> describes a lot of um, neoclassical economics. So, we could do more jokes on economists, actually. But my question is, do you think inflation will stay, hover at around 7% next year? Or will it go lower? Yeah. Or will it go um, higher? Uh, according to John Maynard Keynes, he hoped for a single-armed economist, because economists usually say on the one hand and on the other. <laughs> and for inflation, well, I mean, there are two ways you look at it. Some of the factors that were quite new to 2022 will probably subside. So we had the shock to international energy markets because of Ukraine. Some of that is already subsiding, at least internationally. For some European countries, it remains a problem, of course, if they haven't got the infrastructure to replace Russian gas. But more globally mm. speaking, some of that might come down. Especially and Europe's done pretty well to, to replace that gas. Yeah, right? not there yeah, is struggling. But yeah, anyway, but better um, than we thought. So Another way of looking at it is China is still slowing. It's not good for China, it's not good for the world economy, but it's good for energy prices. So demand, for example, for oil is slowing down in China. So I think energy prices might come off a bit, or at least not spiral mm. anymore next year. So in that sense, inflation pressures might subside. The other thing happening, of course, is that central banks are slowly trying to increase interest rates. Now, on the other hand, yeah. <laughs> the other hand, um, it's probably not enough because we have enormous amounts of liquidity still in the world. And we have enormous amounts of debt. 
and um, when you put all of low that growth. together and low growth, when you put all of this together, I think it is reasonable to assume that we will continue seeing inflation rates that are much higher than what we were used to. Um, and having said that, they might still come down a wee bit. Mm. That's the best I can guess. That's probably a pretty realistic forecast, I think. I Certainly I've heard it's going to hover a- around... 7% next year, which going into election year, and that's a whole other topic, Oliver. That's a whole other topic, yes. Can I tell you my favourite joke about um, Europe and, and Germans and British and French? Sure. And you can tell me if you think this is a racist joke, but uh, the best Europe is uh, the cooks from France, the police from Britain, and the engineers from Germany. And the worst Europe is the cooks from Britain, uh, the engineers from France, and the police from Germany. I find is that, that a racist joke? Uh, I find it personally offensive because my dad was a policeman. Oh, really? <laughs> but it's a it, whole other discussion about when does national stereotyping become racist and when is it affectionate fun? Yeah, I don't know, but I think we have totally run out of time We've now. totally <laughs> run out of time. So, so much for national stereotypes. It's good night from him. Um, good night. Do I have the last word? You do have the last word. Oh, thank you very much. In which case I say... Goodbye. Goodbye.